Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, November 14th, we are studying Amos chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. Today's text is Amos's vision of a plumb line. Now, although this is the third of Amos's visions, there is a shift in the tenor from the previous two, both in what the Lord says and in how Amos responds. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Zelwyn Heidi. Pastor Heidi serves at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Grassy Butte, North Dakota, and St. Peter Lutheran Church in Belfield, North Dakota. Pastor Heidi, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Glad as always to be on with you. This this should be a good time. Yes, it should. So, Pastor Heidi, we're we're now in Amos's third vision. Help us out with the the context. Where where have we been in Amos uh, that gets us to this point? Yeah. So the immediate context of this vision, of course, is the two previous visions that the Lord shows to Amos. Uh, that of the uh, locusts coming in. Uh, right at a very difficult time or the, a crucial time, and then also a judgment of fire. And in the previous two visions that the Lord has given to Amos, uh, Amos cries out to God, you know, don't do this. And the Lord kind of relents of what he chooses to, of what he was going to do. But now the, the way that it has shifted here in this series of visions is, is the Lord is going to show him a third vision, what is commonly called the vision of the plumb line, and this vision, well, I mean, it has to be explained, I think is the best way to put it. There's going to have to be a little bit more uh, in-depth explanation of what the Lord wants to show and what it is that the Lord's trying to teach. What do you want to add to that? Well, so yeah, in, in the first two, then, it's pretty obvious to Amos what's going on. He sees the locusts forming, being formed by the Lord at the worst time possible, agriculturally speaking, and he immediately cries out, please forgive. And and then he's calling in the second vision, the Lord's calling for a, a judgment by fire. Again, Amos knows what he's looking at, and he prays, please forgive. In this third vision, it's not going to be as obvious to Amos. The Lord's going to have to explain it to him. And so that's that's one of the differences that I think we want to point out. What what else do we see in terms of differences between those first two and then now with the third? Well, probably the, the biggest difference between the first two and the third is that whereas in the first two, the Lord had said, this is not what is actually going to happen the Lord basically says in this third one, this is what is going to happen. This cannot be avoided. This will come to pass. Uh, the judgment which has been threatened upon Israel is now coming uh, to pass upon Israel. And nothing that even Amos can do is going to avert that, that judgment. So we do see this intention, this, this shift from this is not it. This is not it. This is it. Okay. And so now yeah. we, we're going to see that movement here. 
So we, we've, we've returned to that language that we had in chapters one and two to those opening oracles of, of woe for the various pagan nations and then for Judah and Israel, where you get that repetition that this is the punishment that the Lord's not going to revoke. We're starting to re- see a return to that now here at the book of Amos. So do we have a, almost bookends to a, to a degree? Kind of. Um, and as we go through the rest of the of the book of Amos too, you're going to see this this um, intention that the Lord is going to bring this judgment to pass. You know, I, I will shake the nations kind of a thing. I'm going to shake as with a sieve. But of course, towards the end, then we see also that that hope that is going to be part of the book of Amos as well. But right now, the focus is on that promised judgment, which will come not in not too many years upon Israel when they are taken away into exile. Mm. So okay, all right. So let's go ahead and, and take a look then at this vision that Amos sees. Again, we're in Amos chapter seven, verses seven through nine this morning. This is what he, the Lord, showed me, Amos. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. There is the vision, Pastor Heidi. And I think when you were talking there near the beginning, you said the the vision that, I can't remember the language you use now, but you maybe called into question the, the term plumb line. And so this is one of those places where we've got a Hebrew word that is obscure, difficult to translate. ESV reads plumb line. Help us dig into that issue a little bit. Well, and to be fair, many of the English translations these days also read plumb line, but it's an interpretation. And the, the difficulty comes in with so many words within the Old Testament. Um, this is the only place in the entire Old Testament where this word is used. And when that happens, we don't have a lot of clues as to what the actual meaning of the word, you know, you don't have as many clues to determine the meaning of the word. So we just kind of have to go off of other ways of trying to figure it out. And the way that's most commonly figured out is it sounds a lot like a word in related languages to Hebrew that sounds something like lead or tin. And for that reason, um, people have interpreted to mean, well, the Lord must be holding like a piece of tin on a string, you know, like a plumb line so that you can determine how straight something is. Cause you know, that's, that's the tool of a mason. He's standing on a wall and he's using that plumb line to figure out, is this wall straight? Is it you know, set up the way that it should be or does it need to be torn down? But the reason why that can be, oh, go ahead. Well, no, I was just gonna say, so that, that's, and that is the way that the majority of the English translations take this vision, that the Lord is standing right. by a wall that's been constructed with a plumb line and it it should be straight according to that plumb line and, and again just to you know, so we know what we're, we're talking about a plumb line is a a long rope or string and at the end of it is some sort of heavy metal such that the the line hangs vertically and its intent right. is to make sure that the building is or the wall is built to to square it's it's straight up and down constructed correctly. So that's that's the way that the majority of the English translations are going to take this. 
And that's mm-hmm. based on, as you said, languages that are related to Hebrew and, and words that sound right. similar, trying to make that. But there are other ways that you might think about this. And, and another one of those ways is how do other ancient versions or translations take this word? And that's where we get a bit of disagreement, it seems, Pastor Heidi. Right. Well, and the most the most common one, of course, that we look towards is the ancient Septuagint, which is the ancient uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament. But they take it a very interesting direction, and they say that it was a this is um, adamant or like hard, like just kind of a a hard metal, you know. So it's not really describing it in terms of um, like a plumb line, but just a wall made out of adamant, a wall made out and. And the Lord is holding adamant in his hand. Um, the Vulgate also, interestingly enough, uh, Jerome's translation, the ancient Latin translation from after, you know, the days of Christ, he actually interprets it as a plastered wall, a wall of plaster. And he sees it as a as the Lord having a trowel in his hand, like a, a, a mason who's about to plaster up a wall. And the reason why I bring this out is because these ancient interpreters were also struggling with what this word meant. And so trying to figure out this, you know, what does this mean? What does it mean here in Amos? What is the Lord doing? That is what, um, that is why they went the way that they did. We, and like I said, in most English translations and most more recent translations, including the King James and even Luther for that matter, um, in the in his German translation, understand this to be a plumb line like we've been describing it. And so that's why um, so many translations go that route. Do you so want me to build on Luke, any of that or Well, yeah, I mean, just to I think I think the reason that this is important is, well, or one of the the issues I, I think we should talk about with this is is our certainty of what God's word says. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. so so most of our English translations, along with Luther, are going to read plumb line. And, and yeah. you and I, I think, as we interpret today and, and to talk about what this means, we're going to go with plumb line. Mm-hmm. Is that the right thing to do? Should we, I mean, what do we do with plaster or tin? Should we think of other interpretations? Should we be able to hold both of them at the, the same time? Can you, can you help sort through some of those issues? Sure. Yeah, and what I'm doing with this is not really trying to draw into question like, you know, that we're going to misunderstand what the Lord's trying to do here. It's really just being honest and saying we have these difficulties and we have to acknowledge that we have these difficulties with this word. However, as we read through this text, even if we don't think of it in terms of a plumb line specifically, or, you know, if we go that way, you can still see what it is that the Lord is doing. So even if there are questions about what does this individual word mean? I think we'll see, as long as we're being straightforward with the text, that it's not really going to, to bring that much confusion into the text because we will still be able to determine what it is that the Lord is trying to say. Maybe, maybe the best way of putting it is, is that even if we don't have the sermon image of a plumb line anymore, you know, of a mason holding up a plumb line, we can still figure out what it is that God wants to say. And that is actually not in question because the rest of this is abundantly clear what it is that the Lord wants to say. So even if we can't attach a 100% certain, this is the particular image that the Lord is conveying by this one Hebrew word that only shows up here. 
We still know what Amos is preaching or what he's right. seeing here in these verses. And so we can be we can have that certainty even with the uncertainty around one particular word. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Yep. Very good. Very good. So so with that then, let's let's think about what is it that the Lord is showing Amos here in verse 7. What's the what's the picture? Well, the picture that is being set before Amos here, and it's one that has to be explained to him because the Lord says, you know, what do you see, Amos? And then he says, you know, I see this plumb line or whatever the word means. And then the Lord goes on to explain it, saying that I am setting this in the midst of my people and I will never again pass him by. I will not overlook his transgressions. The judgment is coming. And so through this image that the Lord is setting before Amos, he is showing primarily that the judgment is coming and that the time of the Lord's patience has come to an end, um, which is something that maybe we don't talk about as much as we should, especially in the days of the New Testament. Um, sometimes we like to think that, you know, well, I mean, that the Lord is always going to be patient, that he's always going to, to overlook. But in fact, there can come a point when we will sin away his patience and the judgment will come upon us um that there is a seriousness to our sin that we should not intentionally continue in it you know we should not say let us sin that grace may abound but actually turn away from those sins because the lord may very well bring us what we deserve hmm. So I think this is where we want to spend the majority of our time, right, Pastor Heidi, right. in terms of what is the Lord's patience, in terms right. of the, the doctrine, right? I mean, he, he says that he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He he ascribes to himself the the attribute of patience, being slow to right. anger. So, I mean, so so we want to we want to talk about well, what what is the lord's patience rightly understood how do we how do we rightly apply that to our lives as christians how do we wrongly apply that to our lives as christians uh what is the like what is the limit of the lord's patience yeah, i mean th- these are there's lots of questions surrounding this is the point that i'm i'm trying to make and and obviously you can't right. answer them all at once but let's let's start digging in to this because yeah. I, this is really i think one of the big things that this text brings up for us so what i mean what is the Lord's patience rightly understood? When we deal with the Lord's patience, we are dealing with his, his steadfastness. We are dealing with his, his promise that he's going to be true to his, um, to his promises, that you know he will bring to pass what he says he's going to bring to pass. And he's not, not going to let the sinfulness of man get in the way of that. I think that's why uh, that important word throughout the, the Old Testament, uh, steadfast love, is so important to understand his patience because the Lord says, and the Lord is not going to change his mind in that respect. He's, he is going to do what he says he will do, and he will allow, and he will overlook um, the the sinfulness of men because otherwise, you know, you know, he could just he would never get around to f- fulfilling his promises. If, if our sins were going to keep Jesus away, Jesus would never have come. And so God, in his patience, deals with us in our sinfulness, deals with us in our weakness, 
and lifts us up again and, and makes us into a new creation. So it is dealing with us as we are. I think maybe that's the, the best way to start with God's patience. What do you think? Yeah, no, I, I think that's I think that's very helpful, especially especially the way you put it, that if God was waiting on us to fulfill his promises, that he could never get around to doing it because we would never merit it. We would never earn it or deserve it. So if he's going to be be patient, he's got to act according to his own self and who he is. And so I, I think that's that's a very helpful way to put God's patience in the context of his steadfast love, his loyalty, his faithfulness to his people. He's made his promises, and despite our sinfulness, he's going to keep those promises. And his patience is a natural outflow then of that reality. He's faithful. We're sinful. How do you keep those two things together without the Lord just destroying us outright? You get God's patience. Does that right. summarize, add to that? No, I, I think I think that's a, a good way of kind of t tidying it up and putting a bow on it, because uh, we have to begin our understanding of his patience in those terms. Because I think sometimes when we think of patience just in, you know, human terms, we might think of it as just like bearing, you know, with, with something that's annoying or bearing with something that's, mm. you know, this is, this is difficult to me, so I'm just going to be patient with it, and then I will, you know, somehow get over it. But that's not really what God's patience is. God's patience, like you say, is an outflow of his love for us and that he does want us to be with him. He does want to bring his promises to fulfillment because then we will enjoy him forever. You know, and if he didn't have that divine patience, like you say, we would never get there. Hmm. Yeah. So. And, and that so God's patience is not just bearing with the annoying. So it's. It's not like when the well that, that's the way you phrase it. I think it's I think it's helpful. Mm -hmm. So God's patience, he's not the father who says, you know, my my kid is really annoying me right now, but I'm just gonna overlook it, right? It is his patience right. isn't so much overlooking it or or to use the other sweeping it under the rug, but actually doing something about the sin in in ultimately in the work of his, his son Jesus Christ. So so God's patience is tied to his steadfastness, his faithfulness, his loyalty, the the truth of his word, which I think is going that that starting place is going to help us understand why God's patience would come to an end, right? Right. Right. Yeah. Well, because, and this is maybe something really important to bring out, the Lord says that he is slow to anger. He does not say that he never gets angry. Hmm. Um, the Lord is, well, he is holy. And the Lord has to bring judgment upon sin. And if all we're doing is showing how much we're just going to cling on to our sin, eventually there's going to have to come a point where the Lord's going to say, okay, you know, like in, in Romans, I'm handing you over to your to your sin. If you don't want to let go of it, there's, I mean, then the judgment must come. There must be judgment upon sin because otherwise the Lord would not be just. Otherwise, the Lord would not be holy, right? Hmm. Yes, yeah. And so, I mean, so again, we're, I think, 
uh, the part that I'm at least holding on to here that's helping me is <laughs> is the fact that well no I mean because this is a this is a tricky issue and it's hard for right. us to to wrap our minds around and talk about and so to help to help us talk about it I think the steadfastness the faithfulness the truth of the Lord's word is a good mm-hmm. starting point because it helps us to understand what the patience of the Lord truly is that he's busy mm-hmm. working out his promises which are promises for our salvation but it also then allows us to hold on to that that flip side of it and to see why it does happen that the Lord's patience comes to an end he's he's mm-hmm. fulfilled his promises he's been true to his word and his word also involves law it's it's not only gospel there is judgment that there is justice mm-hmm. that he brings upon us and so the lord's patience naturally is going to come to an end because it's connected to his faithfulness and the outworking of that to us who are sinful right. am i still tracking with you and and helping yeah, the conversation so. yeah <laughs> i think so yeah. Well, because when you're dealing with God's faithfulness, too, um, if the Lord says that, you know, he is going to bring us justice, that he is going to make right everything that has gone wrong, and he never actually gets around to punishing sin, that would make him a liar. And so that's where this tension comes in that, yes, he is faithful, he is patient with our sin, but he is also a king who rules in the midst of his enemies. He is also a king who is finally going to bring justice for his people. He is a king who is going to bring us out of this valley of sorrow and this veil of tears and bring us to himself. And the way that he is going to do that is through judgment. That's why we speak of the last day, the return of Christ, as being you know, the great judgment, the last judgment. Because now the Lord is bringing all things to fulfillment in you know in that day Mm. so so that that brings to mind another another contrast or a two-pronged idea here that i want to talk to you about you said well you and first let me start with that one the the idea of of the day of judgment the last day when christ returns raises the dead and Mm -hmm. and when it comes to the lord's patience that day in particular brings to mind what Peter says in his second epistle, where where he talks about that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. And the reason is because he doesn't want people to perish, but that all should be repent or should should reach repentance. And mm-hmm. I think that that image of the Lord's patience isn't as offensive in in terms of because, well, in, in the sense that the Lord has set a day, it's coming and, and it's unavoidable. And he set that day with the purpose of bringing as many people to repentance as possible. And so that right. that's one sense that we have the Lord's patience. And that isn't offensive or as offensive to us, I think, as, as another way that you said it earlier. And, and you, you, used, you used the phrase, we can sin away the Lord's patience. And, right. and that, I think, is a bit more offensive to our sensibilities than just the idea that there's a day out there it's coming we don't know when it is the lord's waiting for that day because he wants to you know to to save us i I can i can be okay with that but you're telling me pastor heidi that i can sin away the lord's patience that that i'm not sure that i like as much 
Um, so right. I mean, we've got about two minutes here on, on this side of the break, but that's that's kind of what I want to dig in with a little bit um, with you is is help me sort these things out. And and if I need to be offended, you know, or if that offends my sensibilities and it's the Lord's word, fine, right? Um, it's not about my sensibilities. <laughs> but but I, I want to make sure that we understand both of those things rightly. Right. So with, with right. two minutes here, take us take us there. Take us through that. Okay. Yeah, start well, to. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, start to, I think, is the better way of putting it. Well, and it's kind of like I've been trying to um, explain through some of these other images that I've been using. But the idea of sinning away the Lord's patience is really just the idea that there, that there is a judgment that is coming. And if we imagine that persisting in our sin is not going to have consequences. And what I mean persisting in sense of, I don't want to let it go. I'm continuously, uh, conti I'm continuously in it, um, kind of like Israel in the time of Amos. They're in, you know, they're worshiping these false idols. They refuse to let them go. The Lord has told them again and again and again that they need to turn away from these things and actually turn back towards Him. But they refuse again and again and again to listen to Him. The Lord's finally saying, "Okay, this is going to result in the exile." I am going to take you away from this land because of your sins. And that is exactly the, the language that the, the Bible uses over and over again. The exile comes because of the sins of Israel. They have sinned away God's patience, and now he is bringing the judgment. I don't know how much time we have left before the break, but do you want to react you to that? You, well, you got you got thirty seconds, which which maybe I'll just close <laughs> it out for us then on, on this side. So, and I think this is this is related to the work that Amos has already done. It, when you say they've sinned away the Lord's patience, He's told them already what's coming multiple times. He's told them what's coming, and He told He's told them why it's coming with the purpose of getting them to repent. They haven't. And I think that's the sense that we're saying they've send away the Lord's patience. But we're going to get a little bit more on that on the other side of the break. Pastor Heidi, we're here on Sharper Iron. We're going to take that break. Stick around. Did you know that your individual retirement account may make the best gift to KFUO? The IRS now allows individuals 70 and a half or older to transfer their required minimum distribution directly to charity and avoid paying the associated income tax. These gifts can provide regular long-term resources to KFUO. If you have questions about making an IRA gift to KFUO, call me, Mary, at 314-996-1518. We'll send a representative out to help answer your questions and help you establish a legacy of giving to your favorite radio station, Worldwide KFUO. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Hello, this is Dr. Dale Meyer. Have you heard Concordia Seminary's program, Word and Work and Intersection? Every week, you can hear it on KFUO Thursdays at 2 p.m. Central Time. We visit with many interesting guests 
about how the Word of God applies to their daily vocations and ministries. Be sure to tune in, and may the intersection of Word and work be busy on your corner. Are you the type of person who loves their community and wants it to be the best it can be? Now it's easier than ever to do your part. Go to RecycleMo.com to see just how easy it is to recycle the right way. Or if you already recycle and want to be as efficient as possible, RecycleMo.com can tell you what should and should not be recycled in your area. Become part of the clean recycling movement today. It's the right thing to do. Sponsored by the Missouri Department of Natural Resources. On the next Lamplighter Theater. Well, this fog is just right for me. And here's the place. Rivington Hall. Now comes the fun part. Ah. Ah. Ain't nobody can pick a look like Black Dolly. No, sir. Don't miss the next Lamplighter Theater. Saturday mornings at 11 on Worldwide KFUO. Did you know that many LCMS military personnel and their families are unable to receive Word and Sacrament ministry due to the lack of LCMS chaplains? Ministry to the Armed Forces is looking for pastors who will answer the call to serve as a chaplain to provide Word and Sacrament ministry to the men and women who selflessly serve our nation. Find out more about this exciting ministry by contacting me, Chaplain Craig Mueller, at lcmschaps at lcms.org. That is lcmschaps at lcms.org. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Thursday, November 14th. We are studying Amos chapter 7, verses 7 through 9 with Pastor Zelwyn Heidi of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Grassy Butte, North Dakota, and St. Peter Lutheran Church in Belfield, North Dakota. Pastor Heidi, prior to the break, we, we've been discussing at length this matter of God's patience and him reaching the end of it. And you, you're telling me over the break a, a little bit that, that something that might help tie some of these strands together is the idea of, of hardening of hearts. How, how does that help this conversation that we're having about God's patience? Yeah, the concept of hardening, like that we see in Pharaoh, for example, in the book of Exodus, and also we see in other places in scripture, is this idea that our sins have basically brought us to a point where we are basically beyond the, the point of, of return. And what I mean is that as the Lord, as Paul says in Romans uh, chapter one, that when we get to that point, the Lord is handing us over to our judgment. He's basically saying that your hearts have become hardened to the point where now I am going to bring judgment down upon you so that there's, there's no way of, of turning away from that. There's no way of coming back because it is a divine judgment upon our sinfulness. Obviously, the Lord can do what he wants, and we're not really called to determine when someone is hardened to that point. But we do see that in the Bible, um, like with Pharaoh, you know, he, Pharaoh was hardened in his heart by God, not just himself, but God did it so that he could work his purposes in Pharaoh. So this idea of, of God's patience coming to an end is related to that because now our sins have brought us to a point where we are being hardened past the point of, of return. And that is God's will to bring that judgment down upon us. Mm. I, I, I recall. Bring, well, go ahead. Go ahead. Keep going. I'm, I'm just bringing up all kinds of, of fun, entertaining topics today. So 
<laughs> well, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm recalling some of the conversations that we had when we were studying the book of Exodus with the matter of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And, and one of the more memorable ways that it was put to me then was uh, what, what we would call, or what was called Burger King theology, that God lets us have it our way. That's the, the, the advertising for Burger King, have it your way. Fair enough. So, <laughs> so God lets you have it your way. You, you want to persist in sin. You want to, to do these things that he's told you time and again are rebellious against him and his word. He's going to let you have it your way. And, and that would be the, the end of his patience uh, when he right. lets you have it your way. A, a couple, a couple more thoughts and questions for you. When, when you say a, a person is is beyond, there's no way of coming back. Right. Does does that mean in terms of the the physical judgment and the spiritual judgment? Or I mean, you know, we, we've got we've got as long as it is today, right? It is the day of mm -hmm. repentance. Mm -hmm. So I mean, can we make a, a distinction? Say, and, and to take us maybe closer to Amos. When, mm -hmm. when the Lord shows Amos this vision of the plumb line in chapter 7, and it's, it's going to happen, that that would refer primarily to the destruction that's going to happen by the, the sword, as he mentions in verse 9. But it doesn't necessarily mean that, that there won't be people that will recognize what's going on and repent. And even though they go through this physical judgment, when it comes to their spiritual judgment, they'll repent and, and be saved. Is there is there a distinction that we, we might be able to make there? I think the distinction that you're making is between um, a collective hardening, like mm. the, a whole people being hardening. And, I, and I'm talking primarily in terms of individual hardening, um, like with the individual of Pharaoh or the individual of the sinner who wants it his way, as it were. Will some hear the word of Amos and turn back towards God? Absolutely. And that is why God sends his word, and that's what he's trying to do, to call them to repentance. But the same word that brings um, you know, deliverance is also the same word that will harden some even further. You know, that Pharaoh, for example, hears the word of God, and it is God's word, but his heart becomes harder as a result of hearing it. And so this judgment coming upon him individually pushes him past the point of no return. And again, I'm talking about God's judgment and God's choice to do this. I'm not talking about our own individual like psychological makeup or something like that. When God lets it have it our way, he's, this is a divine thing happening upon us and we are being confirmed in the judgment that will be coming. Mm. Right? So I yeah, exactly. So I, I want to, with with this, then this idea of God's patience running out or being sent away, that, that his patience runs out. I want to attach that to what Amos does here in chapter 7 as well. One of the differences between the first two visions in verses mm -hmm. 1 through 6 of this chapter, and now this third vision is Amos's response. In mm -hmm. the first two visions— when Amos sees the vision, his response is to pray, O oh Lord, please forgive. O oh Lord, please cease. Here, the Lord asks Amos, what do you see? He answers, a plumb line. And that's all Amos says. There's no intercessory prayer. So as we think about the Lord's patience running out, what about the prophet's patience running out? And and then to, to take that forward, the church's 
patience running out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and yeah, no, I mean, it, there does come a point where um, we are commanded, I suppose you could say, that, that there is no more room for intercession, that there is no more room for um, calling on the Lord to change something because, well, it's not going to change. And I'm thinking of like the Lord specifically commanding some of the prophets, you know, don't pray to me about this. I'm not going to hear it. Um, you also hear in the New Testament, for example, um, Paul saying things like, you know, after you admonish your brother once, then admonish him again. But if he still refuses to listen, you know, then turn and then treat him as a Gentile, you know, as, as you would someone who is outside the church. There does come a point when we do have to let people have it their own way, that they, it, through their actions and through their sins, have brought about the end of the church's patience, in a sense, and also the end of the Lord's patience. How, how do we know that we've reached that point? We don't. Mm. <laughs> um, we And see, this is, I think, what makes it so difficult for us because we think of it in these very psychological, these very almost emotional kind of terms, and that's what makes it so difficult for us. But we're also not given to know when someone has passed that particular point, you know, when someone is being hardened to the point of judgment coming down upon them. I do think we still are, we are still called to pray on behalf of all people. Like Peter says, we are still called to, um, you know, pray for the Lord to do his will on earth as it is in heaven. But we do also have to recognize that at some point, um, you know, especially in terms of like church discipline, there does have to come a point when we just have to say, okay, you know, that's the end. We have to let it go now. But making that call for us is not really something that we're saying, okay, we're cutting you off now. So you're going to hell. We don't have that kind of knowledge. We don't. We shouldn't have that kind of knowledge. But we should trust in God, who has all things in His hand. Does that make sense? I think so. So, when it comes to church discipline, as as you brought up, there there may come a point where, after going to the person individually with two or three others as the whole church, calling this person to repentance, we recognize that it's it's just not happening. And so we proclaim what that person is telling us, that they have separated themselves from the church because they've they've not repented. It's it's not because their sin was so terrible other than other sins, right? It's that they've they've not repented. That's the sin that that gets you in trouble, is the sin that you don't repent of, not not the magnitude of it, but the fact that you persist in it. And and so we we proclaim that to them at a certain point. But but we never we never stop proclaiming the word. And, and in that right. sense, we don't know when the point is reached because as long as it is today, the church is always scattering the seed of God's word, proclaiming both law and gospel so that the one who hears, hears. And, and in that sense, we don't know. I mean, is, is, that, is that the point I think that you're, you're making? Well, yeah. And even with something like, you know, full-blown excommunication or something along those lines where we actually say, you know, you are no longer part of the body of Christ. It's not just done as kind of a, you know, see, we're better than you kind of a thing. Mm. It's really done in the sense of this is our last word to you in a sense, or, you know, the, 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 the strongest word that we have, 
the way that you are going, if you persist on this road, will lead to hell. That's why you excommunicate, to bring that final, that intense word of law upon them so that they would turn and repent. But again, we don't have the power to make them repent, only the Lord does. And so if it is his will to bring them back unto repentance, then yes, we receive them back into the church because the Lord will do what he wants. But it may be his will to bring judgment down upon them. And at that point, all we can say is what the Lord has said. I mean, it's really in his hands from beginning to end. It is. I like that, that this is the comment. This is the strongest word that we have. And and that's what Amos is getting to at this point. This is the strongest word that he has. And, and we're going to see, again, chapter 7 really starts the end of Amos and and it only continues to build. We've we've noted the difference between the first two visions that Amos has and now with the third vision and then also the fourth. We continue to see how Amos is laying out this strongest word that he has against the people of Israel so that they would hear and recognize just how bad it really is. And and this matter of God's patience coming to an end is is part of that strongest word that that he has for them and and so so with that pastor heidi let, let's move in then to what the lord says in verses eight and nine we've already talked a little bit about how he explains the vision that that this plumb line is there in the midst of of his people israel such that he will never pass by them again that the moment of forgiveness is gone and then in verse 9, he begins to describe that judgment that's coming. And he starts with judgment against the high places of Isaac. And I'd like to, to hear your comments on, on that phrase in particular. What are the high places for, for anyone who's, who's unaware? But, but why do you think the high places of Isaac in particular? Sure. Yeah, and that's that's also interesting because it uses Isaac and not Israel. But I'll get to that in a minute. Um High places in the Old Testament are pagan places of worship, um, especially in the days of the kingdoms like this. I mean, the very earliest part, there are high places dedicated to the Lord, but that's kind of a different subject. Basically, it's any place that's slightly elevated up above the ground. And so like um, the way that our chancels, for example, in our churches usually go up a step or two. In, to get up into that place. That would be like a high place, you know, just kind of this outdoor chancel where the the pagan worship was happening, okay? So that's what a high place is, and that's where, you know, you know all these pagan sacrifices were happening. Um, but to call them the high places of Isaac, to me, is very interesting because, um, well, I think what's happening here is that they are latching on for one thing, they're latching on to places that the patriarchs probably set up for the worship of God, and they're using them as worship of these false gods. You know, so Abraham built an altar unto the Lord, or Isaac built an altar on occasion, although it was all in the south, but that's kind of a different point. And maybe they grabbed hold of these places and just kind of used them not only for the worship of God, but also for the worship of Baal, or also for the worship of the Asherah. So this kind of defiling of these places that were originally dedicated to the Lord's worship, I think, is part of it. Mm -hmm. um, but but it's also interesting here because Isaac, 
as a name like this, you know, using the name Isaac to refer to the people of Israel, this is actually the only place this happens. And I'm not really sure what to make of that. Because in almost every other place in the Bible, you hear it referred to as, you know, Jacob, uh, Israel, you know, Joseph, even Ephraim, even, you know, that's they're used as kind of a way of talking about the whole kingdom, the whole northern kingdom. But here they're called the people of Isaac. And it's also uh, going to occur here in the next part of this chapter uh, with Amaziah in verse, oh, what is that, 16, saying, don't prophesy against Israel and do not preach against the house of Isaac. And so I think what he's doing is, is he's using this phrase, you know, the house of Isaac, for whatever reason that Amaziah is using it and saying, this is what you are doing. You are profaning this patriarch's name through your sins. And so I'm using it as a way of referring to you collectively. Mm. There's, there's a lot to unpack there. Where do you want to go with that? Well, that, that helps me. And, and you're right that the Isaac is, in, in my opinion, he's, he's a bit of the forgotten patriarch to a degree. Right. Uh, we know a lot about Abraham and he gets mentioned a lot. We know a lot about Jacob. He gets mentioned a lot. And Isaac falls in the middle there. And there's just even in the book of Genesis, when you think about his narrative, there's really not a, a ton about him. And he doesn't, as you said, get get used. His name does not get used like Jacob, Israel, Joseph, Ephraim, and, and others. And and so to see it show up is is just a bit puzzling and, and makes you wonder, is there some significance to that? And I think the way that you've explained it, it is a is is very helpful that they've because we've seen this where like Bethel, Gilgal, these places that had patriarchal significance are now being used as places of false worship. And so to throw Isaac's name out right here, especially with the connection that you've got there in, in verse 16 that's coming up, it is, is probably what's going on. You know, I mean, the only, when I think about Isaac's life, the primary event that happens in Isaac's life that's very distinctive and stands out is his sacrifice on Mount Moriah. But I, I just don't know how that could relate to what Amos is preaching here. And so I, I hesitate to make a connection there. Um, other than, and that's why I think the connection that you've made for us is, is, is probably what's going on rather than being more specific. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a, that's a helpful explanation. So feel free to add to that or, or continue to, to take us into the, the sanctuaries of Israel, the house of Jeroboam, and, and the way the verse continues. Well, and... Well, I think I'll just continue on so that we have enough time to get through the rest of this you've, here. You've got just under nine minutes, so take oh, we got, use okay. as you will. Yeah. Okay, we got a little bit of time then. That's good. Because um, then with after the high places of Isaac will be lit, made desolate, then you have the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. It's just this, I, this way that Hebrew poetry works of restating an idea but in kind of different words or kind of, you know, expanding on the idea here is just kind of doing a true parallel kind of expression. So the high places of Isaac and the sanctuaries of Israel are really kind of referring to the same thing. Um, both, you know, the, the high places of these false worship areas, which will finally be taken away. And the way that that's going to happen is through the last part of this verse, when the Lord says, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. 
And I think the, the best way to explain that is the way that Amos himself explains it, like two verses later, uh, when Amaziah accuses him of saying, rightly, Jeroboam shall die by the sword and Israel must go into exile away from his land. So the way that these high places are finally going to be destroyed, the way that this land is going to enjoy its Sabbath rest, it's going to be purged of the uncleannesses, is through the coming exile and the destruction of the um, the royal houses of Israel. Of Israel, the northern kingdom, mind you. And I'm not talking about the southern kingdom yet. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, I think that in, in this particular section, it does seem that the northern kingdom is primarily in view. We've, we have seen where the southern kingdom is certainly not exempt from Amos's preaching, but, but here it, it would seem that the northern kingdom is the primary one in view. The house of, of Jeroboam is a, a pretty big phrase, I think. Jeroboam, son of Joash, is king at the time, but we also right. know that Jeroboam, son of Nebat, is the the first king of the northern kingdom, and he's the one that leads them into sins. Do you think we have both of those things in view here? Maybe. I mean, it's possible, you know, because Jeroboam, in a sense, could be used as the the talking about the whole northern kingdom. I guess I'm I'm a little more inclined to think of it primarily in terms of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Um, do you want me to kind of talk about him for a minute, kind of put him in context? Sure, or? sure. Go, you can. And, and, but I mean, I think the reason I guess maybe I, uh, I'm thinking of Jeroboam, son of Nebat here as well, is because what Amos is talking about isn't only that Jeroboam the second, Jeroboam, son of Joash, it's not just that he's going to die in all of his sons, but he's got a bigger view in mind, which is why I'm, I'm thinking maybe Jeroboam is, is wider than just the particular king reigning at the time of Amos. That, that's that's kind of how, how I'm looking at it, I guess. Yeah, no, and and I like I said, I, I certainly see how how that would work and how um how you would work with that idea because it is ultimately the sin of Jeroboam the first, the first king of the northern kingdom, who ultimately leads all of the other kings astray. And so, yes, there is a sense in which judgment is coming upon Israel for the sins of Jeroboam by which he made them go astray. But I think that with this, Jeroboam II, I think it really does focus on him in particular, even if it's kind of got Jeroboam I in the background, because Jeroboam II, the son of Joash, is what he's doing, I think, is important enough to see that this is, you know, Amos is saying, even though things are going really well for you right now, I am still bringing judgment upon your house, okay? Because he's the fourth in the line of Jehu. And of course, if you remember Jehu, Jehu is the one who actually kills the priests of Baal within uh, the Northern Kingdom. So he's kind of like the best king that, J that the Northern Kingdom ever had. Not that he was good, just that he was the... He wasn't the worst, let's put it that way. <laughs> and, and, and because of Jehu's reformations, because he slaughtered the priests of Baal, the Lord promises Jehu that he would have a son sit on, uh, sit on the throne of the northern kingdom to the fourth generation. And Jeroboam is the third of, that, of those four. His son Zechariah will actually be assassinated, which will bring the end, which will bring the line of Jehu to an end. This is also the longest dynasty that the Northern Kingdom ever had. 
Um, this is also Jeroboam who is victorious because he is expanding the territory. He's pushing back. He's even helping out, according to the Book of Kings, the Southern Kingdom and helping them regain some of their territory as well. And so everything that Jer Jeroboam is doing seems very positive, very upbeat, very like everything's going great. God must be with us. And yet Amos comes and says, I will, you know, the Lord says, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with a sword. And the destruction that has been put off in his patience is finally going to come and nothing is going to stop it. Mm. Just when you think you've got it made, everything looks perfect right now. You're in this dynasty that that seems to be as, as good as it's going to get. Life is great. That's when the destruction is going to happen. I, I, I like that, that specific judgment against this house of Jeroboam that's reigning right now. Pastor Heidi, we've got just under three minutes left on the morning. Any points that we didn't hit that you want to talk about or, or summarize, wrap things up for us today? Um, we've, we've talked about a lot of stuff. We've talked about a lot of pretty heavy stuff. Um, when we're dealing with God's judgment and when we're talking about God's patience in judgment, yes, we should, in a sense, receive that word with fear and trembling, because if we think that sin can go on forever, and that God is just always going to say, you know, well, not a big deal, not a big deal. Or if we think that God says that it's not a big deal, then we're really only deluding ourselves. You know, Christ did not come to say that we're, you know, pretty decent kind of people that would just kind of mess up sometimes. <laughs> Christ came to save us from our sins. And if we continue in those sins, what are we saying about Jesus? You know, what are we saying about our need for Jesus? So yes, we should turn away from sin, as Amos called to the northern kingdom to do. But when we do it, we recognize that we are being made into a new creation. So we don't want to sin away God's patience. We don't want to bring judgment down upon us, because then, you know, that's not going to end well for us. But we should cling, call upon his name while it is still today, while it is still now, because this is when the Lord has promised his mercy, and his grace to us through his son, Jesus Christ. We aren't going to get to the last day and say, oops, can I have a do-over? No, because then it'll be too late. But call on him now, and he will hear, and he will answer, because he is willing to forgive us because of his son. Pastor Zelwyn Heidi is the pastor at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Grassy Butte, North Dakota, and St. Peter Lutheran Church in Belfield, North Dakota, helping us this morning with Amos's third vision, chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. Pastor Heidi, thank you for your time today. Thank you. While it is still today, it is the day of salvation. Today is the day to hear the Lord's word of judgment that is coming because of our sin. But not to stay in that sin, to turn from that sin and turn to Christ, the one who has taken our sin upon himself, has died for us in our place and risen victorious on the third day that we too might share in that eternal life by faith. That is our hope today, right now. Today is the day of salvation. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.